Okay, we're going to roll with this. And if we need to upload it later, we'll do it that way. Welcome to Dental Brain Crops for the third time. I am your host, Chelsea Myers. And today I'm so excited to be joined with Brett Kessler. Um, Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chelsea. Great to be here. Uh, long overdue. I'm really excited. Yeah, Brett and I've been talking since last year and finally got this um, this podcast scheduled today. And I will properly introduce you in just a second. But what was really cool about that was we started talking. And so, of course, I followed your social. And then all of a sudden, you're like my National Geographic of dental. I'm seeing you on the mountains. And then I'm seeing you in, was it snowshoeing? Is that what you said? Yeah, I do uh, a lot of snowshoeing and skiing in the winter and just I love snowshoeing because you get to go to places you never get to go to in the winter, you know, due to the snow. So it's great. And I live in the mountains. Uh, I, I live in Denver, which is close to the mountains of Colorado. So it's great. That is so cool. Yeah, I've never snowshoed before. It looks it looks like one of those things that you would go into it with a lot of aspiration and then realize like two to three steps in like this is actually... <laughs> quite the athletic feat to take on. Yeah, it, it is harder than, uh, than just hiking, you know, because snowshoe has a volume, uh, you know, it makes your foot bigger. And every time you, you sink in, you pull up that volume of snow uh, on your snowshoe. So it is like yeah. doing, doing like leg lifts uh, while, you're, while you're running and, uh, you know, depending on the snow conditions, but it's, it's quite a workout and uh, brings me a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, like running with sand buckets on your feet on the beach or something. Basically. <laughs> Very simple. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Brett, Brett, you are um, a trustee for the ADA. I know that you practice dentistry still. Um, you, handful of days a month right now, right? Do a yeah, lot of traveling. I, um, sorry? Yeah, I was going to say my trustee commitments bring me around the country. And uh, so this year I'm not working as much as I normally work, but I'm uh, trying to impact the profession in different ways. So Very good. And then you also serve on the Wellbeing Committee for Colorado in dentistry. And I also I want to touch on that later. So if you would, you know, I had this I had this agenda all drawn up and then I've just been reflecting on the conversations I've been having with doctors over the last couple of weeks. And I thought, you know, I think that um, you are the perfect person to give us some inspiration and some hope as well as um, some perspective on what it can be like in different areas of life. You're not only um, a champion in dentistry, that you're an incredible physical athlete. And then I would also say an athlete of the human mind in some ways. And so I'd just love to touch on all of those areas if you're up for it. Uh, I'd love to. Um, yeah, that pretty much encompasses what I do. That's great. Love to talk about that. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, let's just start, you know, what, talk to me about your dental career. Did you always know that you wanted to be a dentist? So that's a, a funny, I got a funny answer to that question. So okay. I, I went to the University of Iowa and I studied engineering and with the intent of going into medical school. And when I spent one summer studying for the MCAT and, um, you know, and I remember having the MCAT application in my hand, standing in front of the mailbox, wondering, I don't know if I really want to do this. And I don't know where I just ripped up the application and walked away. And I, um, you know, kind of floundered around for a little while trying to figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. And one of my, my good friends, who was in dental school at the time, he was my roommate, um, told me, you know, Brett, you should consider dentistry with your uh, engineering background 
you'd probably do really well with dentistry and uh, that the girls were cute. Basically, that's what he said. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and I had met uh, some of his classmates and they were cute and I was pretty, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, I could do that. But I really knew nothing about dentistry at the time. And so I, I shifted everything from MCAT studying to the DAT and a dental admission test. And, you know, two weeks later I took the DAT and I scored really, really well. Um, and, um, you know, and, and I look back and, I remember enjoying going to the dentist when I was like 12 years old. I had a crush on my dental hygienist, so I would eat Oreos before I went in so she'd spend more time with me. And (laughs) that's all I knew about dentistry. Um, But, you know, once I I took that DAT in my, I was in biomedical engineering and, you know, out of nowhere, we started having um, guest lecturers from the dental school who, you know, showed us what dental implants were and i didn't know what dentures were but basically he showed us before and after people with really bad teeth and then people with beautiful smiles with and implants and um and i became intrigued by that um one of uh, uh one of my design projects that i had to uh partake in was the uh, you know biomechanics of uh and the you know, force distribution of, of how dental implants work under various uh, loads and things like that. So it was like, you know, I, I felt really, really comfortable going in and, you know, I did really well in dental school and uh, the girls were cute. That's where I met my wife. We started dating our classmates. We started dating our first year and uh, got married our fourth. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's my story of how I chose dentistry. So it's <laughs> worked out okay. Yeah, it's worked out okay. So the girls were cute. All, all came full circle. That's right. Very good. Okay. So you say it like that and it sounds to me like a very beautiful, happy, um, you know, as much as it can be low stress, um, things going right, not low stress. Okay. Talk to me about that. So dental school is hard and I'll be honest, I, you know, I was really, really smart, you know, book smart and, you know, going into dental school, um, but I had no hand skills whatsoever. And so they, they throw us all, all these smart people into these art classes and, you know, kind of with the intention to, you know, fend for yourself. And, um, you know, I didn't do very well in those first, uh, those first dental type classes. And in fact, uh, morphology and occlusion, which is, you know, we do like wax up of teeth and create shapes of teeth and, you know, out of wax and, you know, and, and we create bites on, on models and things like that. It was very hard for me. And I failed the, uh, the, the class and my first semester and I had had end up having to take it that summer and I call it, I lovingly call it, I went to wax camp that summer and you know, me and a few <laughs> other people, we huddled around bums and burners and sang Kubaya songs while we learned how to do wax ups and learn how to build our hand skills with, you know, uh, you know, more one-on-one, uh, you know, attention with our instructors. So I became very good at that part. And in fact, I taught morphology and occlusion at University of Colorado uh, for eight years, I believe. And, um, you know, and I really had a, a lot of empathy for those those students because the same thing is happening. They're the smartest of the smart are going into dental school. You know, they have, it's, it's really competitive. Um, and you know, the people that are going, I, I call them the smartest of the smart because they also want a good lifestyle. Um, you know, where they can decide to go to medicine or go to dentistry and, you know, the, the, you know, the, the lifestyle of a dentist, I think is much, much better than that of a physician. So, um, and, and, you know, and I see them struggle and I uh, was able to empathize with that because I was there too. And, 
Um, you know, and I, I felt like it touched uh, a lot of uh, dental students in a positive way and uh, got them going on a, on a great, uh, great path for their careers. So it's, uh, you know, that's the thing about about us. We can learn uh, to to improve in areas that we're weak in, um, you know, and, and I had no idea what I was getting into when I when I went into dentistry. So, uh, you know, and I had to kind of learn everything on the on the fly. So. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that I was originally drawn to you about is um, you have a long track record of making your weaknesses your strengths and not just doing it, but then using that to enrich the lives of other people. Is that something that's just always been you, who you are, you learn it, and now you want to share or talk to me a little bit about that? You know, I, I'm going to just step back a little bit and and if, is it okay if I be, be blunt about uh, certain yeah. parts of my life? Okay, great. Sure. So I, I entered into dental school with a substance abuse problem, with a drug and alcohol problem. And it was my secret. And I was able to do very well in dental school. And I left dental school with a worse drug and alcohol problem. And uh, I got sober in 1998. And um, at that point, as I got on my recovery journey, uh, I became really inspired to, to live my best life when, you know, we're, we're locked up in an addiction uh, with mental illness, you know, our, our world becomes very, very small and very, very limited. And once I broke free of that with the help of professionals and mentors and guides and books and, you know, and I just really had to dive all in, I became inspired to live my best life. And, you know, back when I got sober, um, not many people were talking about recovery. And the only thing people knew about, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction was what happened in Hollywood with those, you know, all the, the, the shenanigans that were going on. And you read about it in People magazine with celebrities who had problems and, um, you know, but no one ever talked about the beauty of recovery and, you know, and, and we swept it under the rug as a culture. Um, I feel it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So why not share that. There's millions of people who are uh, struggling in silence. I chose to recover uh, out loud and uh, in the hopes that other people uh, might find their their way through hearing my story um, and the story of many of my friends and colleagues that also, uh, you know, paved the way for people like me. So um, so I, I, I became inspired to live my best life and share and, um, you know, and, and be a catalyst for for positive change in the world. And, you know, and I, I learned that is my why, you know, over the years. I, I, that's what I, I came up with because I was doing it naturally. And then when I became conscious of it through a lot of self, uh, you know, self-reflection and, and personal work. Uh, once I realized that was what it was, I became more intentional with uh, trying to, to, you know, make the world a better place. I love that. And I think that's such a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, you know, you talked about um, you went into dental school and your addiction was your secret and you were able to protect that secret for a really long time. And I think that just just to provide a little bit of clarity for our listeners here, um, you know, there's there is a lot of shame around addiction and um, and anything that we're doing that is not ultimately aligned with who we want to be or who we believe we should be, but that we're doing. And I think a part of that is um, you protect it so much because it's the thing that allows you to, in some way, shape or form, contribute in those other areas. So 
that is the reason that that addiction is so protected because it's how I get the confidence to talk to you or it's how I have the energy to show up. And it, there's this tremendous amount of fear around if you take that away, whether or not we'll be able to contribute at all to those other things that we do want to be a part of and we know are important to us. So I appreciate you bringing light to that, that shame and that secretiveness. Exactly. Thank you. And, you know, and it, and this also another aspect of it is that we're all such high achievers in the dental profession. It was the first time in my life where I failed at something. And, you know, I felt when I went into rehab, I felt my, my, uh, my objective was to learn as much as I could about this problem. And because that's how I got over, you know, different challenges in my life up till then. And, you know, and once I, I learned about it, then I would just move on. And, um, and, and, you know, outside of rehab, a few months later, I was right back to where I was. And that was a scary, depressing, uh, you know, set uh, mindset that I was in. So, you know, with high achievers who never fail, this could be really, really bad. And so we keep it a secret because we don't want anyone to see our weaknesses. And, um, you know, and we don't want anyone to see our humanness. We don't allow ourselves to to be human in that way. Um, and so, you know, the high achievers like to, to figure things out on their own. They don't like to ask for help. They don't like to show any signs of weakness. They don't show fear. And, and in dental school, when I say I went in with a, a drug and alcohol problem, I came out with a worse one. In dental school, they, they, they breed perfectionism, you know, with everything. And like when I was teaching uh, occlusion and morphology, uh, one of our, our um, you know, directives from the director of the program was if God himself and came down and did this lab work on this tooth, on a good day, you give him a nine out of ten. And I was like, uh, I'm not <laughs> okay. doing that. <laughs> I'm not doing okay. that. But we're, we expect these students to come in perfect. And we have to recognize that they're in a growth pattern. And mm -hmm. we have to coach them from where they are. Exactly. I'm sure you're a master of that with the work you do. You don't coach someone from where you expect them to be. You coach them from where they are and build them up accordingly. And, um, and so I see a big shift happening in dental schools right now um, because of the um, you know, the challenges that we're putting our dental students through. And um, so it, I think it's, I'm hoping it's a happier uh, educational experience for our, our future colleagues. So. Yeah. You know, I, I, re I'm reminded of a time that I teach a framework for how to have a difficult conversation. It's three steps. And I remember I was presenting this to a group of doctors once and I said, okay, here's a formula you can use when you're going to have a difficult conversation. And one of the ladies raised her hand and said, Kay, I have a real problem when you say formula, because to me, formulas, there's exactness and it must be this way every single time in order for it to work. And what you're describing sounds a little bit more flexible. And so, and it was eye-opening for me about um, my clientele and the people that I coach because, and just the way that I need to be careful with my languaging, but also be aware of how um, dentists are trained to think for a long time in a certain way. And so when it comes to things like trial and error or, you know, building a practice and all of the things that come with entrepreneurship or building a relationship and family life, which is completely unpredictable and very messy, right? Um, these things aren't formulas. And so I, I now teach it as a framework or a recipe where <laughs> 
here is the general guideline, but please, please use everything that you can, your experience, your knowledge of that person and situation, um, and your own personality to bring your best to that situation. Yeah, perfect. That's perfect because it has to come, uh, it has to be authentic when it's delivered from the, the person who has to face that challenging conversation. And uh, if it's scripted, it doesn't, it, it seems like it's, it's obvious then. And um, you may not generally get the, the connection you were hoping to, or the, the conversation that you would hope to have if it's very scripted. So, you know, you, we have guides and goals of, of every conversation that we have. And, you know, you know we got to use our own creativity and our own personality to deliver. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, okay, while we're kind of on this topic of difficult conversations and um, life struggles, can you share with me a little bit about the conversations, maybe either the perspective of your wife going through this with you or the conversations as you were working through your challenges? Because we all have our unique set of, you know, chaos, loss, um, surprises, habits. And when we have a family that we're also invested in, um, at some point in that recovery process or at some point in that transformation, some very open and vulnerable conversations have to be had. So can you talk to me about that aspect of it? Yeah. I mean, better to ask her, I guess, but from my perspective, it was, it was a very scary time. And, um, you know, I had, the support of my wife, I had the support of my family, my brothers, my sisters, my my dad, my mom, you know, and, and aunts and uncles, everybody, friends. I mean, it was it was really, really uh, paramount that I had that. Um, and you know, and and when I decided to go to rehab, it was uh, you know it was tough, and I had to you know came clean with everyone. And you know, my one of my best friends growing up. When uh, when I hit my bottom, I disappeared for a couple of days on a, a drug and alcohol binge, and he found me in a hotel in Chicago, and um, you know, and he he said, "Brad, I'm coming to get you, and I'm going to bring you to my house." And you know, you, by the way, your dad is, is is searching the neighborhood; he's looking in dumpsters for you. Uh, we've got people calling emergency rooms, and you know, with your you know descriptions, and you know, it was pretty you know, pretty scary. And he's, and he just, he brought me to his house and he goes, go in the back room and sleep it off. Um, I'll take care of your, your family. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll just tell them you, you know, you were sick and here, blah, blah, blah. And something came over me that it was time, you know, like a moment of clarity. It was, it was time to, to stop doing this. You know, I, I was in my third year of, of being a dentist so in the third year of practice. And, and I, I knew things were, were out of control. And if I don't deal with this, I'm, I'm going to die. And it really scared me. So I came clean. Um, and so, you know, and, and, you know, it wasn't fun having those conversations with, uh, uh, with, with my circle of, of support. Um, and, but like I said, I had this moment of clarity where I felt like I had to, and because I did that, um, it made it easier for them to talk to me about this. And, you know, so after I got sober, I remember my wife, uh, wanted to talk to me about something and she was, she was pretty, had a concerned look on her face and she's like, Brett, we need to talk. And I was like, Oh no, what are we going to, what did I do? Because I was so fragile and stuff like that. And, you know, and she sits me down and she's like, Brett, you, 
I see your dad and I see how he's all hunched over like this. And, and I see you and your posture and you're all hunched over like this. And I'd hate to see this turn into that. And I was like, that's it. <laughs> that's what you're going to say. That's, you know, mm -hmm. but I was already going to catastrophe type of conversation and getting ready for, mm -hmm. for this difficult conversation to have. And that was her difficult conversation. Um, and then, you know, I remember another <laughs> conversation, you know, it was just, you know, I remember another one, uh, we, we met with a, another couple who, um, the husband was, um, in new recovery. Uh, he was a pharmacist and we went to dinner and the wife, um, you know, wanted to talk to my wife about, you know, what it was like, how was Brett at this time, you know, and, and what's Brett like now, how did his recovery change him? And, you know, and it was first, it was really humbling, first of all, hearing, my story through her eyes and through her perspective, because, you know, addiction is a very selfish disease, you know, where, where I, I feel, you know, I felt like it was just, I was justified in doing what I was doing because, uh, you know, I worked hard and that's how I like to unwind. And, you know, I didn't recognize the damage I was doing to, uh, to, to those that were closest to me. Um, and, and as I got more and more along the recovery journey, you know, the, you know, a lot of this came up and I made amends for a lot of the, the things that I did and, um, you know, just to clean my side of the street and build my, my foundation in recovery. And so she, you know, the, the, the wife of this pharmacist asks her, what's, what was Brent like then? And what's he like now? And, you know, in my mind, I've done this amazing growth explosion in my head of, you know, that Brett is, you know, so much better than he was you know, and while he was in his addiction in my mind and, you know, and she, and she basically told her, well, yeah, Brett's the same Brett. He just talks a little more and, uh, <laughs> but, but nothing's really changed. And I was like, what, really? I can't <laughs> really. So it was mostly an inside job, uh, that, that, you know, my growth was, was inside and, you know, and mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, people recognize it. Sometimes people don't. <laughs> so, yep. Um, but, uh, yeah, but, you know, but, you know, my, my friends, my family, my colleagues, my family, my wife, my kid, my kids weren't born yet. Um, but you know, they all, you know, they saw something in me that I didn't see in me, you know, and they mm -hmm. were hurt in ways that I didn't recognize that I hurt them. And, uh, and I got that opportunity to, to, to clean that up. And, um, but yet they, again, they saw things in me and, and therefore they supported me. And I don't, I never take that lightly. And, um, so I'm pretty grateful for, uh, the grace that I was given, uh, to, to have these relationships and, um, you know, and I, you know, if, you know, addiction is a chronic relapsing fatal disease if left untreated, but it's manageable like diabetes, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a chronic, yes. diabetes is a chronic disease and it's manageable. And, you know, just like a diabetic can't, uh, can't live off the insulin he took five days ago. He has to, he or she has to take insulin today so they can have their best day today. Um, you know, and I have to do certain things for my recovery today so I can have my best day today. And I do that, uh, you know, first and foremost, every morning, you know, I wake up and I, I do some mindfulness exercises and, you know, and ask myself some questions, you know, what am I going to do for my recovery today? First and foremost, everything else is secondary because without that, I've got nothing. And I'm, I'm very clear of that in the 24 years I've been uh, on this path uh, that I've been sober, I've lost so many, so many friends that uh, I got sober with. They're dead. And, uh, you know, and um, I, I'm, 
yes, I'm scared. If I relapsed, I would lose my dentist, you know, job to be a dentist or opportunity to be a dentist, but I would lose so much more, you mm -hmm. know, and I, I don't ever want to do that. So I, I take it pretty seriously. And, um, and, and as a result, I get to live a great life, you know, and I really do get to contribute to, uh, to the world. And, you know, I, I wanted to practice at, at the highest level. And so I, I feel like I do that. And then uh, to practice at the highest level, have that kind of practice, you have to be a leader. And I, I dove into becoming the best leader I could be. And, and, you know, just for my practice and my family. And then, you know, other people started recognizing that. And so they brought me in to, you know, help out with uh, certain committees at the local level. And then, you know, and then they said, you know, Brett, you're, uh, you know, you would be a really good leader for the Dental Association. And so why don't you consider that? And then I became president of the Colorado Dental Association. And we did great things in my time in leadership. And, you know, and that grew into, uh, you know, uh, um, committees at the national level, the ADA. And then, you know, the ultimate right now, I serve at the Board of Trustees of the American Dental Association. What an honor for me to be able to contribute to the profession at the highest level. You know, the ADA has the biggest opportunity to influence the profession in the best way, you know, to make it the best for, for our colleagues and to, uh, you know, practice the best uh, in terms of, um, you know, of, of the communities we serve so people get served. Um, so, you know, when I was president of Colorado, um, I would treat a lot of other people in recovery and I would do it as kind of a, a pro bono side project. And, you know, but when I was president of Colorado, I was part of the team that created a dental benefit in the Medicaid space here in Colorado. So, you know, 300,000 people now had an opportunity to have a, a dental home where they can access comprehensive dentistry. And, and not just emergency care. And so, you know, those were my people. Those are the people that, that I knew in recovery, you know, and, and, and many, many more, obviously. And um, so I felt like, you know, wow, I can, I love, I love practicing dentistry and I love the relationships I have with my patients and the positive impact I have when I get them out of pain or create a smile or, you know, build a bite and, you know, their quality of life, their health improves and all this stuff is, you know, is happening. But then I found out that I can, you know, influence many people if I leverage it correctly. And uh, so that was one aspect of that. And this all is on the foundation of Brett got sober and Brett wanted to live a better life. So that's right. that know, is so beautiful. I, I love your story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And you're so right. You know, when I think about high performers who either have gotten sober or would like to get sober, the only person I would be comfortable getting that type of advice and coaching from would be someone who is like me in a lot of ways mindset wise and who is like me in where I want to go. And so I need another high performer who struggled and then got sober. Um, right. And so I think it's just such a beautiful thing that you've described there because you're right. You know, yes, dentistry is so important and we want to do dentistry and we want to improve the dental industry and we want to help those dentists who want to get this help have someone who really understands them where they've been and where they want to go. So thank you so much for what you're doing there. You know, you talked about um, you talked about a couple of things that I want to I want to touch on here. One of the things you said was that you had a really strong support system, people who were on your team and showed you a lot of love while you were going through that transition. But then you said you went to rehab and relapsed. Uh -huh. So could you talk to me a little bit? Because we've probably got a lot of listeners here who aren't the ones struggling with addiction. They're struggling to watch the person with addiction. 
So when you think about the people that you found the most supportive for you throughout that whole process, whether you were thinking about getting sober, currently sober, relapsing and trying again, what are some of the people that stand out to you that show the strongest support and that you just knew that person is my person, that person is there for me? What are those qualities and traits that demonstrated that level of support that you really needed? You know, the, it was, so my, my relapse story, uh, went on for about 14 months after rehab and I kept it a secret again. And until I started suffering consequences, um, it was going to continue because there was no, I couldn't stop. Basically that's part of addiction is you have no, no control over that. And, you know, the, the definition of addiction is continued use of a substance or a behavior that is damaging to your life in spite of potential consequences. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that was, it was a classic, I filled that, that definition with a classic role. And, um, you know, my, my absolute bottom was I was living in Michigan. I moved to, uh, I'm sorry, I went to Chicago to attend my best friend's mother's funeral. And um, I was in a relapse mode and I could not stop myself. And I ended up showing up to the wake. And, uh, but then I disappeared and didn't make it to the funeral and everyone knew. And uh, so I kind of, you know, you know, just kind of crawled back out of Chicago and went to Michigan. And, and at that point, my wife is like, okay, Brett, um, we're done with this, figure it out. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, I, I made an appointment with, uh, uh, with your, uh, with your counselor at rehab and uh, for the three of us on Monday. And uh, in the meantime, you know, I'm leaving and she left for the week and went back to her home to be with her family and I was left to figure it out. Um, so, you know, she was bold and, uh, you know, I was afraid of losing that relationship, obviously. Um, but I was more scared about, you know, am I ever going to get over this? Again, I've never failed. This is my first time that I failed. And, um, but I figured if I better, you know, I, you know, and I would go to recovery meetings and, um, you know, and I, I started, went back to recovery meetings and for whatever reason, there was a switch that flipped in me where I started hearing the clear message of hope. And when I started feeling like, well, if this person up here who's speaking went through exactly what I went through and they seemed to be sober, they seemed to be happy and they seemed to be living good lives. Those are three things I couldn't figure out. I better listen to them. And so I kind of dove into that. And, and, and so I had to show a, um, a, you know, I guess a, an effort towards trying to get better. And as I did that, you know, you know, my wife came back obviously, and, you know, my family supported me, my friend who, whose mother passed away, um, you know, I, I, you know, quickly tried to make amends on that. And, you know, every year or so I call him, you know, in my recovery uh, anniversary, it was, you know, it was also the anniversary of his mom's passing. I, uh, I, I, I call him and let him know, uh, you know, I've got another year. Um, again, I apologize. He won't, he says, stop apologizing. I don't want to hear that anymore. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but he, you know, I was with him, uh, I don't know, in February in Chicago when I was back there and you know, we all went to dinner and, you know, me and my friend's group and, you know, and it's, uh, they just never wavered. (laughs) 
you know, they might have not have been so happy in the moment about the things, the stuff that I was, I was, um, the stunts I was pulling, but they, they never <laughs> wavered. You know, they, they, you know, they, they may have been mad in the moment, but they saw something in me that I didn't see in myself and they never gave up on me. Um, and so, and, and, you know, and I tried not to take advantage of that because I know there's many stories that didn't, that don't end up like mine, where the, the, the person, the addict continues relapsing, continues causing harm. And, um, you know, and I wouldn't have put up with my behaviors for, you know, five minutes, you know, and uh, I would now, but at the time, you know, low emotional intelligence and very reactionary, I wouldn't have done that. So I don't know. I don't know if there's a, a great answer, but I was, I was pretty blessed with, uh, you know, with, with the love of, of my, my circle that uh, never wavered. And I, you know, and, you know, so I moved 1500 miles away from all my friends and family, you know, because first of all, I wanted to be in Denver. I wanted to be in the mountains and, uh, you know, you know, maximize my life in the, in, in the wilderness and stuff and, and, and have a good dental career and that, that stuff. But, uh, but even though I moved so far away from everyone, I, I, you know, made an, an active effort to not be separate from them. And I have, you know, great relationships with my siblings, my parents, my, uh, my friends, and, you know, and I, I talk to them very, I talk to them often, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and so I, I, I probably nurture the relationships I have much more than they do. Um, because I feel like, um, I, I owe them so much and don't ever want to lose that and want to, you know, just show gratitude and appreciation for that. The fact that they never turned their back on me. Yeah, that's so, that's so wonderful. And it's such a blessing to have people like that in your life, you know, so for clarity, those listening, whether you're struggling with addiction or a support to someone who is struggling with addiction, um, there are going to be hard conversations. There may be um, relapse involved, but you know, I think one of the important things to remember is that once that once that sobriety is in place, um, while it may not be comfortable, at least that person is present every step of the way to either you know say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, and then fix it, or they're present to um, hear how you feel about it. But the point is their presence. That's what we want. And then from there, it's a journey to work forward from there. You know, you also talked about something, though. You said um, somebody had asked, you know, what is Brett like now that he's sober? And they said, oh, pretty much the same. And I think it's really important because we can't be searching for that external validation that we're on the right path. I think that we need to define for ourselves what success looks like, um, whatever our overage is that we're trying to get in check or completely eliminate. We need to define for ourselves what success is and then be our own source of validation because there are going to be people that it takes a really long time for them to, you know, you know, some people are going to be like your friend where they're like, Hey, stop apologizing. And other people are going to want to talk about it for many, many years after you've made that apology or made that amends. And I think it's just got to be, I think the healthy approach is to have a predefined way of looking at when you're going to let yourself feel okay about things. So how do you today define success for your life? <laughs> that's a, that's a great question. I was having that with a, a friend that I uh, am mentoring um, uh, this exact question. What is success? And you know, some people can define it by, you know, the, the numbers in their bank account. 
Some people define it by the, the number of new patients they have this month. Uh, you know, for me, okay. it is a, <laughs> it, it really is about, um, am I contributing every day to the world in a positive way? And, um, you know, and whether it's personal, you know, inside kind of thing, whether it's with my family and my kids, whether it's with uh, personal, uh, an impact with, with my patients in a positive way, uh, a committee I'm serving on, a, a group I'm leading, you know, I want to, want to you know, be moving forward. And so that's, that's where my definition of, of success comes. And, and, you know, with that, you know, happiness is fleeting, right? I can be happy. I could be sad, but I could still be successful. And, um, you know, and, and, and so, you know, your the emotions still, uh, pop into my brain and, you know, and you know, there's, it's like a sine wave, it's up and down and, you know, and that's life. But, uh, but I have, I, I can decide how I want to act based on those emotions. Like I don't have to sit in it if it's bad and I don't have to, right. uh, to, to coast on it when it's good. So, um, you know, actions, I have, I have tools today that I didn't have 25 years ago and, uh, you know, alcohol and drugs were my solution to everything in life. If I felt depressed, I would drink. If I felt, you know, and, and I would instantly feel better if I felt, uh, happy, I would drink because then I would instantly feel even happier. Right. Um, and so, so it was, you you know, I had to learn how to live and how to negotiate life without a substance to, uh, you know, help uh, manage those those emotions that came into my head. Um, and so, you know, success first and foremost is sober. <laughs> you know that uh, you know, and I've been able to do that for you know twenty four and a half years, and and you know, at one day at a time, every day I, I do the same thing and uh, you know, versions of that, but pretty much the same thing. And, and from there, I want to be able to contribute to the world. Um, you know, and I, I want to go back real quick to, you know, your support uh, group and support system. And, you know, and, and you know, I go to 12 step programs. And one of the 12 step programs I go to is Al-Anon. And Al-Anon is a program that, uh, um, you know, is, is a support group uh, with a uh, an action plan for people who have alcoholics and addicts in their lives. And one of the things I learned in that group is that I will support people in my life, um, you know, but I, I and, and if they are on a good path, I'm like, I'm not, I, I would tell people I will not support you in your disease. I will not, you know, co-sign it when I think you're on a bad path. I will be honest with you, but it's, it's going to come from a place of love and care. It's not going to come from a place of judgment. And so, you know, if, if you have someone in your life that is going down uh, a, a scary road and, and, you know, the best thing you can say to that person is I am concerned. Um, I'm concerned you're, you're going down a bad path. I'm concerned you're going to have devastating consequences as a result of the path you're on. I don't want to lose you. I don't want to see you lose this X, Y, Z. Um, and I'm here to support you in, in your recovery in any way I can, but I will not support you in your disease. And so this applies not only in uh, with with people with substance abuse, but you know, mental illness is is so prevalent, and you know, and you don't have to have a substance abuse problem to have mental illness, and um, you know, and so people are, are are suffering in silence, and and we who are supporters of, of of these people don't really know how to help, and you can't help, you can't fix it for them because it is an inside job, just like with substance abuse. Um, all you can do is is support, and and, and you know when someone is struggling and they're, 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 
you know, telling me all these things that are happening, you know, as a, it's a guy thing, I guess I don't want to generalize, but we want, we like to fix things. And, uh, and, and, you know, we were fixers and, um, you know, and I think that's, that, that's never been effective. I can give people, well, it's really logical. Just, you know, do this, this, and this, and you'll be great, you know? And, um, but the bottom line is, you know, that, that they have to find their way. And so I, I say things like, well, you know, that sounds like a lot of heavy, heavy stuff. You're, you sound like you're in a lot of pain. What can I do to support you? And sometimes it's just listening, you know, most of the time it's just listening so they can hear themselves um, identify and, and examine the emotions that they're in and, you know, and, and, you know, and, and how can I support them? They give me parameters of how I can support it. And I try to support them along those ways and, and not fix yes. it. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a level of insanity. Um, addiction is insanity. Mm. Okay. You know, and um, because no logical person would continue doing what they're doing. And, uh, and if there was, if there was a logical fix, um, you know, like, uh, you know, Brett, you don't, you see, you're doing so much drugs, you're going to die. Don't you see, you're going to lose your license. You're going to hurt someone. You're going to drive, you know, right. all these things that people are telling me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. You know, my proverbial middle finger goes up, you know, what do you know? Uh-huh. You know, I, I hate uh-huh. to say that, but it's true that, and, you know, and, and that's logic. Logic doesn't fix the disease. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. It has to have the spark and, and, you know, and there are, you know, and treatment was really key, even though it didn't, I didn't, I didn't get 100% better when I was in treatment. I learned a lot about myself and, but I thought I was in such denial. I thought I could control it with logic. And, um, that's when I felt at my most bottom when, logic failed me <laughs> because it had never mm-hmm. failed me before. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, but I had people around me, you know, what can I do to support you? That's really what it was. Yeah. You know, I like that you talked about mental illness and, um, you, you talked about boundaries and, uh, you didn't call it that I'm calling it that, but here's, here's what I've noticed. A lot of high performers and a lot of dentists, um, that I work with, like to avoid conflict. And when we're dealing with someone who has a set of behaviors or mental illness or an addiction, whatever the thing is that we don't want to support and nurture, like you were talking about, um, sometimes the thought is if I just don't address it or I ignore that that exists, then I'm not supporting it. But what you're describing is something a little more proactive and a little more direct, like, hey, you know, when you're having your anger outbursts, I'm not going to be around for that. I'm, you know, I'm going to love and support you and I'll ask how to do that, but I'm not going to be a casualty of that. And we're not going to be uh, stand by and watch you do that or whatever the thing is. If, you know, if you're struggling with your sexual addiction, I'm not, no, I'm not going to take you there or encourage that behavior with you, but I will raise my hand and ask you how I can love and support you on your journey to health and wellness. And, um, and that can be a scary thing, but you're right. That is the more emotionally responsible thing because you're taking your own emotions out of the equation and just saying, how do I want to best impact and support this person's path to recovery? And I love you bringing that up. Yeah. And it, it's, I know you are uh, an expert on, on emotional intelligence and growing your emotional intelligence and the power of growing your emotional intelligence because that's really what it is. You know, the first half of emotional intelligence is identifying what am I feeling right now in the moment 
and uh, and is it serving me? And then the other half of the uh, emotional intelligence equation is what is the person that I'm in a relationship with feeling in the moment, and uh, and and am I locking in? with uh you know with those mirror neurons and and getting caught up in their emotions (laughs) um and their drama or can i step away from that and and not get that limbic lock per se and uh and be a a a true resource for that person um Mm -hmm. and 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 set boundaries and and be able to detach uh the the parts of that person that um i know are harmful but still love them uh, you know, unconditionally, um, but not get sucked into those, uh, those, those, um, arguments. And one example of that, my mom and I, um, you know, she passed in 2018. Um, but she was, a you know, I, I love her, absolutely love her, but she was a tough person to deal with. And she suffered greatly from, from mental illness, depression, bipolar. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and when I, you know, was part of on my recovery journey. I made amends to her and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the last six years of, of her life, we had a great relationship and, you know, and, you know, I grew, she didn't. And there were many, many times where she tried to throw spears to, to, you know, yeah. get me riled up in certain ways. And I was able to see those spears for what they were, sidestep them, change the conversation, not go there and, and still be able to have, you know, uh, an amazing uh, display of love for her. And, um, you know, and when she passed, I mean, there were years where we didn't talk years and it was so painful for me. It was so painful for her. And, uh, you know, and, and, but when she passed, you know, my, my brothers and sister and I were all, you know, by her bedside. And honestly, it was a beautiful moment because nothing was left unsaid. I knew, we all knew that all she ever wanted was for us to be together, her, you know, her kids to be together in support of each other. And, and we were there and that's what happened. And, and that would have never happened had I not done this kind of work. Um, you know, I originally, I just did it to get sober, but then I was like, you know, the, I do, I do it now to live my best life. And this is an example of that. And, you know, growing emotional intelligence goes hand in hand with growing your recovery and, uh, not just from substance abuse, but from mental illness and, and, and any, anyone who's a high achiever, the more we can grow that, uh, the more effective we're going to be in everything we want to do and every, every, uh, goal that we want to achieve. Well, that's why I think it's so important to really define success. And our language is just so powerful. And, you know, in order to disrupt those thought, feeling, action patterns that we're operating from, we have to know what the heck we're thinking. And I find that sometimes we really freak ourselves out. Like if we've attributed that some person or some situation causes stress for us, we have so many experiences that have defined the word stress that when we think it, our body goes into stress mode, it starts reacting before we're even in that situation. You talked about catastrophizing earlier. That's what we do. We start in advance having these emotional and physical responses to situations that sometimes aren't even real yet. But even if they are, the only way to change and pivot to um, a pattern of predictable healthy behavior is to understand and really get down to the granular details of what we're thinking and why we're thinking that. And by the way, a lot of times there are a lot of reasonable reasons why we've developed these thought processes. They're just not serving us anymore, like you suggested earlier. And so we've got to have that support to change. Exactly. And, you know, picking up on the physical cues that your body 
yes. uh, experiences when the stress happens and you know and then you can actually notice your physiology changing uh <laughs> can can avert so much stress and chaos and that would happen if we left you know, we stayed on that path um you know and managing that physiology is is so key but we're so unaware of it unless we do this work intentionally and mm -hmm. so I'm going to just put a plug for you, you know, that uh, I've always had a coach. No, we don't work together, you and I personally, but uh, you would be someone I would work with. Um, you know, I've had a coach, a mentor, guide um, my entire career after I got sober. Every single aspect of my, my life I want help with, you know, because I am blind to so many aspects of my life that are holding me back. Um, and so I did it intentionally when I started my practice in 2003, I brought in a business coach to, to help me and help me stay accountable to, first of all, help me tease out what my vision is and then help me stay accountable to that vision. Um, over the years, I've had different coaches and consultants help us, you know, grow that. I've had personal coaches, um, athletic coaches. When I, I did the, uh, I used to be a coach, an Ironman coach, uh, um, you know, for, uh, for people. And then I, I hired an Ironman coach when it was time for me to do my Ironman in, in Hawaii. Um, you know, and if the best athletes, uh, Olympic athletes, pro athletes, they have coaches, why can't I have a coach? You know, why wouldn't I have a coach if, you know, the highest achievers have coaches, why can't I, uh, do that? And, you know, and I, I think that the people you work with would probably say the same thing. Um, you know, and, and you know, a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues, I would tell them, get a coach, you know, and, and there's, well, oh, I can't afford it. I'm like, you can't afford not to, if you want to achieve what you want to achieve, how, you know, this is an investment, you know, in yourself Absolutely. and the return on the investment is so much greater than what I can do on my own. It's your life. <laughs> it's, it's the pathway to the life that you want to achieve. And it's learning to love every step of that process. And I couldn't, first of all, thank you. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, one of, one of my rules is I tell people, first of all, to research the type of coach and have interviews with that person, make sure they're a good fit. But I would never, ever hire a coach that wasn't also actively engaged with a coach. Um, because I want to only grow from people who are further than me and continuing to grow. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one of my things in, in my life is, uh, I always go to the smartest person in the room and most inspiring yes. person in the room. And, you know, <laughs> how did you do it? What, what kind of things, the, you know, were your, what obstacles did you face? How did you overcome them? What were your fears, you know? And, you know, yes. and I was just saying, I was blessed enough that uh, people, saw things in me, you know, personally and professionally and had the courage to, 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 to tell me, right, maybe you should look, you know, go in this path and, and see, see how this works for you. I think you would be amazing there. It's just like my friend told me in dental school to, to try dental school, you know, mm -hmm. with your engineering background, you would do really well. And the girls were cute. That's what my hook in, but you know, <laughs> I did really well, you know, but people like that, I, I say, I have a saying for that now that, you know, I'm on this path and angels always appear on that path and angels always come with a message. And so I look for those, those messages. I look for those, those um, signs from the universe um, because I believe that, you know, that, the universe wants us to succeed and be happy and, and share with the world. And, and so I'm always on the, the lookout for that. And, but, you know, people, people just enter my life, uh, in some level of synchronicity and, uh, you know, and I, and I, and I latch onto it and, um, you know, I'm, 
I'm better for it. And, and as are they, and, you know, some specific mentors that I've had, I always ask, how can I repay you? And they're like, pay it forward, Brett, pay it forward. <laughs> and that's what I try and do. And so when I see people that, that have this great potential, I will be that person to hopefully be that catalyst that will, you know, um, help them get on a, a bigger path, play a bigger game and, and achieve greater things. Um, because, people were there for me to do that. I want to be that person for the next uh, group, the next generation. Yes. I love that. Will you say your phrase again, something about angels? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm walking this path in life and angels always seem to appear on that path. And, you know, angels always come with a message uh, and, and, you know, and, and they're here to tell me something and, and, you know, you know, danger ahead or try this or move this way or, and, um, you know, I, I, I've never been steered wrong. <laughs> and Absolutely. So, and I, I, I keep a lookout for those, those angels and, you know, but I have to be in a good mindset uh, mm -hmm. on a regular basis to be, to be open to those messages and to seek, to see those messages. A lot of times the messages are there, but we're completely blind to it because we're, our head is down and we're so focused on a certain number of success or a certain, you know, uh, goal. And, what I've learned is that I appreciate the journey as much as achieving the goal. And when I am going after big goals, uh, I learned this when I did the Ironman, I'll, I'll talk about the Ironman again, is that I had to become someone different to, to get to that finish line. <laughs> and, right. uh, and, and so, and, and I had to be conscious about that. I had to be teachable. I had to be open. I had to be okay with failures and bad days are going to happen. And, you know, and, and so, um, if you're going to go after big goals, the person you are now would have already achieved it if you were, uh, if, if it was, um, if, if it was, you had all the tools. If you're going to achieve big goals, you have to be open to gathering more tools to get to that finish line. Um, and so I love the journey as much as I love uh, getting, you know, the, the goal achieved. I love that you said that, you know, and mine is that everything is rigged in my favor. And I think it's so important to come up with some sort Love of that. life mantra, something that you say to yourself, but it's got to be genuine. You got to really believe it. Like I really believe that if I go out there and I drive to the store and I get four flat tires, there is a reason that is rigged in my favor. It doesn't have right. to seem like it. That's just what my eyes see that, that that's really irrelevant. Cause when you start talking about, you know, energy and, um, vibrations of the universe or angels or God, whatever your spiritual beliefs are. Um, it, it's so much more than what you see right in front of you. And I like that you touched on needing to be in a place where you can receive those messages or in tune with the angel, giving you the direction because, you know, I think we're inundated with social media and, you know, things on TV and advertisements that are loud and bold and, you know, all of these things that are just coming at us in a really loud and aggressive fashion. And that's not the way, in, at least in my experience, that those intuitive messages um, come to us. It's a, it's a much de more delicate and a much more um, serene type of message that you have to be in the right frame of mind to even recognize are right in front of you. Yeah. And I look at it as a, as an ego thing too. And, you know, my <laughs> ego has, has positives and it has negatives. Yeah. And, um, but then there's the ego on one side of me and then my spirit on the other side of me. And I'm not talking about religion, uh, whatsoever. 
Um, I'm Jewish, but that I'm not very observant. Sorry uh, to to my forefathers, <laughs> but you know, but I have a, a deep sense of spirituality that there uh-huh. is a, there is good in the universe, and I want to participate yeah. in that good. Um, and and with my ego, um, you know, kind of lives in in this scarcity mode and you know you need more you, you know don't do that don't don't go after that you're comfortable here and but yet give me all the accolades when i get there and, you know <laughs> yes. and that's it's it's all ex, you know it, it drives the external validation uh to an extreme almost and you know and, and ego made me who i am absolutely um but but if i can you know, put that aside and, and, and shut off the noise that, that it, that comes with it. I hear the true, uh, the true, true messages of the, of, of my purpose. Um, I can act accordingly. And, and that's really what it is for me is just trying to be more in tune with that, um, and suppress the, the negative parts of the ego. <laughs> so mm-hmm. We can go, we can go forever on that if you want, but yeah, I was just thinking about that. I'm like, well, thank you so much for bringing up ego because that is really important topic and definitely um, opens up a can of worms for sure. But, Um, but yeah, you know, it's all comes back to that self-awareness. And before that you have to have a level of willingness. And I also want to say courage because, Mm. um, you know, whenever you talk about you're so right. I love that you said if you were currently equipped to do the great and big things that you aspire to do, then you would have done them. And so that suggests that there's some level of personal growth that has to happen before you're qualified to participate in those events. Um, And in order to do that development, you have to be willing to have an objective view of yourself as you currently are and potentially coaches and mentors along the way that can help you have that viewpoint. And you have to have courage because it's not always going to be what you want to see, but it's going to be what you need to see so that you can identify how to improve. Yeah. What, what you're describing, I, I define that as humility. Absolutely. You know, where you're, you have, we have a, a very solid understanding of where you're at with a firm resolve to be the best you can be, no matter what the circumstances are, you're, you've accepted that. And now you're willing to do whatever it takes to move to the next level. Um, and humility has, you know, so humbleness is a, is a positive attribute. Humility is a positive uh, word describing us. Um, but on the same coin, humiliation is what occurs when we fail. And, you know, it's got the same word roots, but we can't, and, and a lot of times ego would prevent us from moving forward because we don't want to be humiliated. We don't want to look bad. We don't want that shame. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, but sometimes, you know, failing is, is part of, uh, is part of growth. You know, what do you learn when, when things don't go right? And, you know, we, we think we know it best and, you know, sometimes it's not the right way and we'll suffer, you know, we've, we've got, we may suffer consequences as a result of, of, of that path, but we have to be open and, you know, the courage to, to move forward and, you know, courage doesn't mean absence of fear. You know, if you, you describe people who are, you know, soldiers and, you know, that, that fight for the U S you know, when they're in that front line, you know, they're known as courageous people, but I can guarantee you they're not without fear when they are in, in the act of, of battle. I promise you they're in fear. No one wants to die. No one wants to, um, you know, fail and, and fail their, 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 their um, cohort. You know, there, there's a lot of fear right. there, but their faith of, of walking through that fear for a better desired outcome is what drives them through that. And that's where the courage is. 
And mm -hmm. so it doesn't always feel good in the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, if we can be courageous with our, our actions, um, we have to be if we want to grow. And if you look at uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey's book, and we talked about core values. And, you know, one of the most important core values we have to have is courage. Because we can say a core value, we have a core value of honesty. Okay. But if we don't have the courage to act honest, it's just a word. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And right. so courage is, 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 is a mindset that uh, it may not feel good, but we, you know, got to have the faith enough to go through that fear with a, a, a preferred, a better desired outcome than we're at um, without acting. And I like that you said faith, because I think that is what's compelling enough to um, sustain the motivation to get through the courageous, which we just said doesn't feel good, the courageous action is the faith that you're doing it for a reason that's not just maybe possible, but you're determined to get there and you have faith that you will. And these are the steps that you need to take. I think that's what um, allows that motivation to grow and sustain as you're doing those things. You know, the movies, they make courageous people look like they're almost enjoying, but for sure it, it's not affecting them on an emotional level. And I, and the only thing I can conclude is that those people have a vision in their mind of what that achievement is going to look like or what that um, rescue is going to be like, or what that success is going to feel like. They have something that is driving them that is so much stronger than any of the uh, doubts or fears or worries along the way. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the tied to the cause, and they're all in uh, to make that cause happen. And you know, we talk about faith, and again, there's religious connotations with the with with that word. And I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about mm -hmm. faith that the cause that you are you are faithful to that cause that that cause will create a better preferred future. And only way to connect the dots is courageously act along those lines. Absolutely. You know, another way to look at it is there's not faith and doubt. There's only ever faith. It's just, if you have faith in the thing you want or inverted faith in the thing that you don't. And I really like that right. way of looking at it. <laughs> right. Because then it's just choose your faith. Do you have faith that's going to work out or not? That's up to you. Right. Right. <laughs> well, Brett, this has been so much fun. What have I not asked you that you want to make sure we get to talk about today? Um, now that I'm just reflecting back on, you know, that I've got you know, in the midst of creating some really big goals in my life. And, uh, you know, and I, I, as I talk about it, I'm recognizing all these people that are in my life helping me achieve these goals. And, uh, um, you know, and I just, I'm so grateful for that. And, I'm, you know, you and I have only talked once and, 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 you know, but I feel like we're very much on the same page and I appreciate you, you know, reaching out to me and, uh, you know, taking a chance to, to get to know me a little better in this forum. And uh, I hope that anyone who made it this far in, the, in, in this episode, <laughs> that you heard something that you, you know, needed to hear and heard something that may, you know, give you the courage to act um, along the lines of you living your best life and you in your definition of success. Um, we are all going to experience obstacles along the way and, you know, the resilience that we build by, by us going through those obstacles and, you know, and, and breaking through those challenges is what is, is what the, the drives the success and gives me a lot of joy. And I, I wish that for, for everyone uh, that I encounter. So I guess that, uh, that would be the last thing I would say. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much. Your story is just filled with so much beauty and so much triumph and so much courage. And I, I really appreciate you coming on today. And I more than anything, just sincerely appreciate you coming on today. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you. I appreciate you joining me for today's episode. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit dentallife.coach for access to additional coaching tools, as well as more episodes to help you create the dental life you truly desire.